1: Yama 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 vakitma yama yama yama, yama it's a fun-
0: Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Fennin, and we've got a really good show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we were we will be rebroadcasting an interview from last year, Shaman Waldman, Ancient DNA Findings in Airfoot, Germany. Amazing, this article. In the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about Tisha B'av, the holiday that's coming up, the fast day that's coming up, the portion of Devorah maybe a little bit, which is the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. We've got a cappella music scattered throughout the show. A very poignant and relevant Hasidic story all the way at the end. Before we do anything else, let's go right to The news. <laughs> A young Arab woman tried to stab a security guard at a light rail station in Jerusalem. The guard shot her in the leg. She remains in hospital in moderate condition. A Palestinian threw a grenade and opened fire at an IDF checkpoint in central Israel. The attacker was shot and killed. Baku police prevented a planned attack on the Israeli embassy in Azerbaijan. That's all we got on that one. The city of Stockholm, Sweden, issued a permit allowing an Arab to burn a Hebrew Bible in front of the Israeli embassy. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu strongly protested the permit. The man also received permission to burn a Christian Bible somewhere in the city. I didn't say where. This comes a month after an Iraqi Christian was given permission to burn a Koran. I guess it's fair, but it's totally stupid. A young Israeli visiting Crown Heights, Brooklyn, was stabbed on early Shabbos morning. The student was approached by two blacks, not understanding English. The student did not know what they wanted before he was stabbed in the arm. He was treated at a local hospital and released. Police are treating it as a hate crime. And finally, the movement to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel, BDS, took another loss this week. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans dismissed a lawsuit that challenged a Texas law that withholds state contracts from businesses that boycott Israel. Go blue. And that's the news. Shulfinman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have a special treat for our listening audience. We have Dr. Shaman Waldman, who is uh, from Harvard University and does uh, engaged in ancient DNA studies, which is really cool just in and of itself. How are you, Shaman?
2: I'm great. How are you?
0: Good, thank God. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, ancient the the, the when I saw the article this week. Um, I was just gonna like flip right by I saw this headline and it was like okay it's another headline but something something caught me about this these findings of ancient DNA and it's just like so tell me about this work that you're doing on people who passed away 600 years ago
2: Uh, yeah (laughs) So, yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting to work on this kind of data. Um, So, actually, uh, there's a lot of research in the ancient DNA field, but it was uh, problematic to do such uh, studies on uh, remains of Jews because, as you know, uh, the rabbinical uh Jewish laws uh, prohibited um disturbing the dead or
3: the graves open
2: yes. graves. yeah so um so you cannot do it just for a research uh, purpose um but uh my advisor shaimi prof- professor Shaikarmi, he uh finds this uh place in Erfurt where so the story of Erfurt is uh, very interesting. Uh, they there was a, a Jewish community in Erfurt in Germany. Uh starting me, the, for
0: for us Midwesterners that we think that the world ends at Ohio, where exactly <laughs> in Germany is Erfurt?
2: Oh, so it's uh, kind of in the in the. What big city is it near? Middle in in the middle. It was a, a, actually it was a, a border city between, like the Jewish communities in the west of Germany and Jewish communities in the east of Germany. Okay. And we will talk about it later. But uh, yeah, so kind of in the. Let's say in the middle, but um, but so there was a, a Jewish uh, uh, community over there, and then uh, in the um, in thirteen forty nine there was a, a pogrom uh, in the city, and most of the Jews were uh, were killed. Um, but then a few years later, the Jews uh, resettled in Erfurt, uh, and finally they were expelled from Erfurt in the 15th century, Mm -hmm. and after they were expelled from Erfurt, uh, the city uh, built a a granary on top of the Jewish cemetery in
0: Erfurt. So how long do you think (laughs) Jews had been living in Erfurt, Uh, going back to maybe even before the year 1000, like, say, the times of Charlemagne?
2: No, they they it started in the in the end of the 11th, uh, century. 11th century. That that was like the yeah, that was the beginning of the Jewish community over there. Um Okay. So. And 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 it was ended uh, in in the middle of the 15th uh, century where they were expelled from Erfurt and like the the later uh, Jewish community in Erfurt was only in the 19th uh, century. Mm-hmm. But so we're so talking about this period between the end of the 11th century and and the 15th century.
0: Okay, so now in my uh, that mind was the, Let me interrupt please. In my in my yeah. mind when you say they built a granary. So a granary is not a very big building. So was this a very small plot of land that occupied the Jewish cemetery of Erfurt? Sherman
2: Um so that's a good question. I uh, I I never been in Erfurt, so I didn't see it in my eyes, but yeah, but there's it's I think it's built on like some of the some of the cemetery and maybe other parts are just in the in the ground but not like uh not below of the of the granary but uh, like in in other p- surrounding parts. Got it. Um, but, but the granary is relevant to our story because it just, it stood, uh, empty, uh, until, uh, recently. And then, like, in, in 2013, uh, the city, uh, allowed to, to convert this granary into a parking garage. Uh, and then they needed to build, build a ramp for this granary and they needed to ex- excavate. Uh, some of the of the graves in order to build the ramp.
0: Okay, let me ask you. So, that. let me ask you. So, first yeah. thing that, first thing that hits me is you, the United States is a very new country. The oldest building in the United States is 250 years old. This doubles that. This is a 600-year-old building and they decide, yeah. eh, you know what? It, you know, we're not using it. Let, let's make it a parking lot. That first that's the first thing that hits me. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was surprised too. I'm I'm from Israel originally, so yeah, it's also not very like uh, common in Israel to just do do this. There convert a very old building into a gra- into a parking uh, garage, but uh, yeah. Okay, so, so did people
0: did people know surprising. that yeah. this five, because in the United States, if you build something and it's there for 100 years, people have no clue what was underneath it. There's no memory, there's no record, there's no nothing. It doesn't say this is the former site of. So did people know that 600 years ago, this had been a Jewish cemetery and there was a granary? Was this like common knowledge? Or it's like sort of like when they started excavating, they said, oh, look no, what we so- found.
2: I don't think it was a common knowledge, but there was people that knew about it. That's why, like the the Karin, uh, who is the archaeologist over there, she went there and and uh, told them that it's uh, it's a Jewish. There is a Jewish cemetery over there because they had she had maps uh, that uh, specify where was the Jewish cemetery in the uh, Middle Ages. So. There, there were people that knew that this is a Jewish cemetery um, below this uh, this granary, and when they started to excavate it, she, like so, she she stopped them and told them, "Okay, there there is a Jewish graves over there, and we need to do a rescue excavation to to move this uh, this graves to a, another Jewish cemetery."
0: Uh, there was never like a, and, you and i cry like how could you desecrate the Jewish cemetery and go put your ramp someplace else or put your parking lot someplace else <laughs> just leave the leave the cemetery alone that that was not a, a an option it was like we need to no. we need to move these yeah. these graves
2: okay. yeah they 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 had to to, to move this uh these graves and in in that point so uh, my advisor shai he found this place and since the these graves were already excavated. He got a, a rabbinical approval to to use teeth, detached teeth from the skeletons, uh, to do a, a DNA research. Okay. And the reason that we used only teeth is that teeth are not considered as part of the body in Judaism, so we can use them to to do the to extract DNA and do the the research.
0: Okay, so this probably answers my next question is. I would think we have the expression, you know, and it's quoted by everybody at most funerals, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And I was in the impression that after a bunch of years, like 100 years, there's not even a skeleton left. But you said that there were full remains after 600 years that needed to be transferred, Shaman?
2: Yeah. Um, so today, uh, DNA is extracted even from bones from, like, thousands, uh, like uh, tens of thousands of years ago so this is a relatively a very short time Um like 600 years is is like very recent and there's no problem to extract dna from this bond uh like some of the dna is degraded uh, it's not in the quality of modern dna but for sure we can extract uh, a lot of DNA from this, uh, okay, now, from this
0: with, bone. Without Our guest today is uh, Do- Dr. Shaman Waldman. I'm having a great time. I don't know about you. Dr. Shaman Waldman, <laughs> we're talking about ancient DNA findings, findings found in a Jewish cemetery in Erfurt, Germany. She is with the Reich Lab of DNA Studies at Harvard University. Um, so without getting too geeky, How do you take a six hundred year old tooth and find anything besides the tooth fairy?
2: (laughs) So we have in the DNA, there's uh, the uh, sorry within the tooth, there's uh, the DNA sequence that uh, we have in each uh, uh, cell in our body, and this uh, sequence of DNA have information about our ancestry. Because we like each one of us receive the, uh, their DNA from their parents that receive it from their parents and from their parents. so actually, in each one of us, there's a lot of information about many uh, years ago, yeah, and we can go a very long way in the in the past uh, just using our our uh, DNA. So when we have DNA, uh, from these samples from Erfurt, that are that was uh, more closer than us to the uh, origins of Ashkenazi Jews, we can use this DNA to to study about the the ancestors of this community uh, in Erfurt, and also we can compare their DNA to uh, to the DNA of uh, modern Ashkenazi Jews to see if this is the same population we can also uh study how diverse they were comparing to to the modern Ashkenazi Jews we can ask a lot of questions uh, based on the on the sequence of the of the DNA
0: okay that's so uh, cool. and
2: that's what we did in this Okay,
0: wonderful. Okay, so my daughter was given a present. She got somebody said, "Here's a. uh, I'm buying you a 23andMe, which is one of these DNA ancestry things." Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, she had it done. We had a whole WhatsApp party, and she revealed the source, and it came out ta ta da da. Our family's 100% Ashkenazi. No, (laughs) no surprise. Okay, so now, so I have this 100% Ashkenazi DNA. What did you find with these people that were? With the teeth from six hundred yeah, years okay.
2: ago. So I think that the most uh, stri- striking finding, finding was that uh, there, like Ashkenazi Jews today, are uh, very uh, homogeneous genetically, very very similar to each other, and these uh, samples from Erfurt were much more heterogeneous than modern day Ashkenazi Jews. Okay, so they were more different from each other than uh, than the average Ashkenazi Jews today. Um, so it, we realized that the, this homogeneous population, this modern uh, uh, population of Ashkenazi Jews, was not always like this, and that during the Middle Ages they were much more heterogeneous. We know from historical uh, records that there were uh, two. Ashkenazi communities at the time—one uh, in the in the west of uh, Europe and one uh, in the east of Europe—and they were different, uh, like culturally wise. But we didn't know that there the, there were also genetic differences. And our study suggests that the differences were not only cultural but also genetics. And this uh, this population were later. Uh, admixed and form the community that we know today as Ashkenazi Jews, which is very uniform uh, communities, but it wasn't like this in the in the past.
0: Uh-huh. Do we have the technology, the know how to understand? Like, if we look at this gene, we could say, "Oh, this person had blue eyes. This person had brown eyes." So, I'd like to know what's the differences that you w- were manifest. If I was uh-huh. walking in Airfoot uh, seven hundred years ago, and I would look in somebody, and I would say, "Because I'm a I'm a Chabad person," I go up to people. And say, say, hey, are you Jewish? Would you like to put on to fill in? <laughs> Would I recognize this person as, as being Jewish? You don't look so funny, you don't look Jewish.
2: Yeah, so I don't know how the non-Jews uh, looked at the time, but uh, we tested some uh, traits like uh, eye color or uh, hair color uh, and the, it was very similar uh, between modern Ashkenazi Jews and these Jews of Erfurt. The, so I assume that they looked similar it's actually it 's kind of striking that the continuity between uh, these samples and the modern Ashkenazi Jews, even though they were like the ancient samples were much more diverse we we can see that they have the same uh, the same like ancestry source and that the gene flow from other populations into the Ashkenazi population uh was very little since the 14th century. Uh they there's a really like even though these people lived uh, with non-Jewish uh, Europeans around them, they almost uh, didn't admix with other populations from the 14th century to today. Um so they were very similar. <laughs>
0: Okay, so if they were very similar to today, so how were they different then? What did you see differences?
2: So, but they were very similar, but they were just like more, uh, more diverse. There, there was we had we find at least two groups in uh, in our study, and one group was more uh, had more uh, uh, East European uh, ancestry. Than the other, um, so and it 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 had more european ancestry than modern ashkenazi Jews also mm-hmm. um so this is a uh this is a difference compared to the to the modern uh, ashkenazi Jews okay. there so
0: I'm going to so, I'm going to ask a glib question so can yes. my daughter go back to 23 and me and say okay so I'm 100% ashkenazi but which 100% ashkenazi am I uh
2: so the i, I don't know if it, if she can ask Tanchi and me, but yes, there are like very uh, in, in, mo- in the modern genomes there are very minor uh, differences between Ashkenazi Jews that arrived from Western Europe and Ashkenazi Jews that arrived from Eastern Europe. Uh, these differences are very minor, but there are some differences. What we, uh, what we showed in our study, that these differences were much larger uh, if you're going back to the Middle Ages, but okay. We only see, like, these traces of this difference in, in the modern general. Okay. But, okay. yes. Yeah. Good.
0: Understood. Our guest today, again, is Dr. Shaman Waldman from the Reich Laboratory of Genetics at Harvard University. We're talking about DNA findings in the Jewish cemetery in Erfurt, Germany. I am I am fascinated. This is, like, beyond cool to tell you the truth, Shaman. Um, so, uh, what it, Ashkenazi Jews... Have be, and I figured it was because over the course of the centuries, with the lack of transportation and communication, so there's a slew of genetic disorders and diseases which are inherent among Ashkenazi Jews, such that there are organizations where young people are encouraged, get yourself tested, to see if you have this genetic disorder so you shouldn't marry somebody with a similar type thing so that you shouldn't have, God forbid, a kid with Tay-Sachs or Kavanaugh's or or, uh, CF, cystic fibrosis, or any of those type of things. Did you find any of those type of things 600 years ago, Shaman?
2: Yeah, so... We we detect uh, some of these some of these mutations that cause this disease also in the in the Jews of Erfurt from six hundred years ago, Uh, so they also had these these mutations in their genomes, and the reason for this uh, for these mutations and for that caused. Uh, and this disease that you talked about is that uh, the Ashkenazi Jews had a founder event or bottleneck. Uh, that's how we called it in the genetic studies. And the meaning is that this population uh, started from a very small group uh, of founders. And these founders had um, mutations, like all of us had, right, uh, random mutations. And uh, But because uh the, the it was such a small group of founders all of the population that later uh descendants from these founders had the same uh, mutation and because they married with each other, so we see more uh, more of these uh diseases in ashkenazi Jews and the, and the we find these mutations also in Erfurt meaning that they already experienced this founder event. They lived after uh, the founder event of the uh, of the Ashkenazi Jews. So they had the same uh, mutations as the modern Ashkenazi Jews.
0: Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. I'm warning you. You've, you've <laughs> got all this information. It's very wonderful. It's, it's very historic. I'm very proud of it. And I'm giving you major kudos to the whole organization. What practical thing... Are you going to do with this organization with, with this information? What can we do now that we know the din- the DNA structure, the genetic structure of Jews six hundred years ago? How is that going to help us today?
2: Um, so the purpose of our study was to understand to get a better understanding of the origins of Ashkenazi Jews. We don't have a practical uh, implications of uh, like what uh, you can do with it uh, now but rather we I think it's very important um, to to understand the origins of this uh, of this population as as we're trying to do it for other populations so it just help us to, to get a better understanding of, of our history and that was the purpose of our study.
0: Okay would you able to take it say back now that you have this piece of the puzzle would you somehow be, because the first question they asked me is 600 years is a long time ago. Are there older Jewish cemeteries that are being watched at this point, Shaman? Uh,
2: so that's a question I don't know to answer. Uh, as I said, it's uh, it's harder with uh, Jewish uh, cemeteries and Jewish remains, because uh, you have a uh, strict uh, rabbinical rules. And so, uh, I don't, I don't know, but for sure it's uh, something that worth uh, looking into because we th- there's still a lot of open questions about the history of Jews and the history of Ashkenazi Jews and, and the relations between Ashkenazi Jews and other uh, Jewish groups um, and if we have data we can try to answer all of these questions. So um, uh, it's. It's worth looking for for it, but I don't know if it, uh, if there are any other cemeteries that uh, excavated.
0: Okay, good. Uh, one, right one, one more question: the year is yeah. twenty. Uh, where are we? 2020? Twenty 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 seventy three. Okay, and you're mm-hmm. looking you're looking back at your career, and you said I had a successful career. Could you describe that, please? What does it mean for Dr. Shaman Waldman to have had a successful career?
2: Uh, That's a hard question. That's the hardest question. (laughs) Um, uh, That's something I need to to think about myself, but um, I think that if um, I will be able to to use um, these tools of ancient DNA and uh, modern DNA, uh to get people to to understand more about their history or the history of the world and where did we arrive from. Uh, I will be happy. I will be satisfied with that.
0: Great. Are you planning on writing any books?
2: Uh no, not for the moment.
0: Okay. Not not in any language. <laughs> Okay, uh, no.
2: yeah, I, 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 now I'm focusing on my study. But, good, yeah. very good. I
0: wish you much, Hatzlache, <laughs> continue, let's, much like success. Thank
2: you very much.
0: Our guest today has thank been you. Dr. Shaman Waldman. She's with the Reich Lab at Harvard University. We've been discussing ancient DNA findings at the Airfoot Jewish Cemetery in Erfurt, Germany. I want to thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us. And thank I, you. I feel my, that I'm smarter now. Thank you so much. <laughs>
2: Thank th- you so much. It th- was great talking to you.
0: Take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for Kosher, and S-U-P for Supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. For your listening pleasure, this is Benny Friedman. The, it's one of he's doing one of his songs, a uh, remix of his own song Beosa Hasman in the time when Mashir comes, what we can expect. This is the a cappella version. Let's listen. <laughs>
1: I will be lo I
3: to see him as a the Yishom,
0: We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community. And Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call eight hundred six zero three eighteen thirteen. 603 1813 That's 603 1813 Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shilfenen here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have, up next, this is Yishai Reboy, also singing one of his own songs. This is the a cappella version of Siba Hasibot. That God
3: is the cause of all causes. me <laughs> In Safaka Nibatua, but so fatid by herald. Aktah anu share muna share avana shele no mele
0: Guy Reboy, he's making quite a name of himself. He's going to be playing on Labor Day um, Sunday or Monday in Madison Square Garden. Could you imagine? Okay, He's not going to be playing to 19,500 people, but I think he's going to be playing to like 13,000 people. That's pretty incredible. Hey, if I had tickets and I was living in New York, and if my Bubby had wheels, she'd be a bus. Anyway, speaking of buses, this is Yako Shweki. The song is called Aish, which means a fire within you. <laughs>
3: a me. I Oh, oh, oh,
1: She had the book, you the book
3: Shall my be seen,
0: Shulfin, and here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. This coming week, uh, July 25th in the evening, begins the commemoration called Tisha B'Av. It's looked upon as a black day on the calendar. There was the day that the spies came back with a report saying, we can't go to Israel. And God said, okay, you're not going to Israel. And that was Tishabov and he said people are gonna die. And anybody who died in the desert for the forty years that they were wandering around the desert, which was decreed on Tishabov, that they wandered around the desert, died on Tishabov. Fifteen thousand people died every year on Tishabov. It was also the day that marked the destruction of both temples. The first one in the year 538 uh, BCE, and then in the second one, and the, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and the second one by Titus. Their name should be obliterated from the annals of history in the year 70. It was also marks the massacre of the city of Betar, which is not the city that's next to Jerusalem. This was located in the Judean hills somewhere. And uh, tens of thousands of Jews were massacred in one day. And there are a whole host of the oh the expulsion of Spain in fourteen ninety two was decreed on Tishabov. That not decreed as they had to get out on Tishabov. They picked themselves up and left. It was Tishabov. So these are these are terrible things. Why do we have to remember them? Well I think it was Napoleon who was walking through a Jewish quarter somewhere, and he heard people crying. And he said, what are they crying about? They said, they're crying because of the temple was destroyed. And he said, how long ago was their temple destroyed? And he said, oh, about 1,600 years ago. And he said, and they're still crying? So he said, something to the effect of a nation that cries over its losses after 1,600 years will merit to have those losses fulfilled or renewed, or whatever the, the the line was. I don't remember the exact line, but he said, "It's if you can do that, it's like, whoa, yes, we don't forget. In doing so, what we're doing is we're showing the Almighty that we still care. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, Lubavitcher Rebbe said, listen, we're banging our heads against the wall for 3,300 years, trying to break through to bring the Mashiach, to bring the Messiah. And we're told, we're given a prescription. The Torah tells us clearly what we have to do. We have to do Torah. We have to learn Torah. We have to do mitzvahs. We have to not transgress. We have to do kind deeds for each other. And the Rebbe said the world needed to be, of course, this is the understanding, that the world had to be perfected enough to allow the Messianic era to occur, as it says in the song that Benny Friedman sang at the beginning of the show. In that time, there will be no famine and no jealousy and no competition and no war. But the only thing people will be involved with will be with the knowledge of God alone. So we've been working at it and to, quote the, to paraphrase the paraphrase she says, what does God want from us already? She says, maybe, came up with a couple of maybes, maybe it's because people don't want it. Says, Why should I give you something you don't want? People don't appreciate when they get a gift and they don't want it. The standard Father's Day ties and tie tacks and cufflinks and aftershave and soap on a rope, which I don't even know if they still sell soap on a rope. But, Nobody ever wanted that stuff. Okay. When we got married, there was a whole shelf in a closet that was, oh, we have a wedding thing to go to tonight. Let's see what gift we're going to give them that someone gave us that we don't want. And we surmised with some of these gifts that they were so hideous that they were actually from the beginnings of the annals of time. And no one ever used this gift. They just it was like the perpetual gift that just kept on giving. People just give kept on giving it away. And who knows? Forty years later, people may still be giving away that same set of hideous mugs. Yes. So maybe people just don't want the Messiah to come. So the Rebbe went out in the campaign to encourage people to let people know that there's something called a Messiah in Judaism as well. It's not just a Christian concept, and on the contrary, the Christians got it from us. The Mashiach was, is, let's you're talking the Moses, you're talking a portion of Balak, which we discussed way back when. So that Jews don't know, I didn't know that Jews believed in a Mashiach. Yes, we believe in Mashiach coming. So the Rebbe really pushed and emphasized that we should really yearn for Mashiach to come. And then the Rebbe said, well... Maybe a shrimp just needs to be like coerced and started a campaign. We should say, Ad masai. how much more God, how much more we have? What do we, how much do we have to put up with this nonsense was going on with the world? You take a look around. It's like, we thought 30 years ago when the Rebbe was talking about this, that the world was messed up. <laughs> I don't know what the Lubavitcher Rebbe would say. It's like, we don't, we don't do that. What would the Lubavitcher Rebbe say? <laughs> But the world has definitely spiraled downward in the last 30 years. I don't know when we have to hit bottom because it says the Mashiach will come either when things are really good or when things are really bad. So I'd prefer if it would happen when there were, things were really good. But the, just the nonsense and the craziness that's going on, I'm not going to even enumerate it over here. So the Rebbe said, okay, let's, let's push God. And finally the Rebbe said, you know, maybe it just takes one person. Maybe there's one person out there. We're talking close to 8 billion people. If not 8 billion people, it's going to be 8 billion people soon. And one of them has to do a good deed. And that one good deed is going to tip the scales. To make the world just the way what we needed for Mashiach to come. So now so the Rebbe is encouraging everybody. Everybody should encourage everybody else. Go do a good deed. And Just as a, uh, a uh, practical example, which I'm going to encourage everybody who's listening right now. You have a desk or a table someplace and on it there's a corner. Like a counter, a kitchen counter or something like that. Put a charity box there. And every day, put a quarter into the charity box. And when the charity box is full, give it away to a charity. I'm not telling you which charity you have to give, but the idea being is that every single day you're recognizing that the Almighty gave you money to give away to a poor person. So you're recognizing the Almighty's involvement in your life. And you're recognizing that the Almighty is acting, is, is making you to act as a conduit for the livelihood as a, of another person. And in this way, you're making the world a better place by increasing in acts of kindness and goodness. Do something like that. If you already have something like that, come up with your own thing. Let me know on RabbiFinman.com. Speaking of RabbiFinman.com, if you'd like to get in touch with me, the best way is through RabbiFinman.com. Right on the home page is the contact page. There's also archived editions of the show. There's archived editions of the U Parsha, the E Parsha, ways in which we present Judaism in a interesting, exciting, and hopefully entertaining and educational way. There's also the donations page, which we're not talking about this month because Baruch Hashem July was paid, but you can take a look at that if you want. And go check it out. Go check out JewishFerndale.com. Uh, excuse me, Jewish JewishFerndale is uh, having some events. If you're listening to this event before Sunday the 16th, so Sunday the 16th at 7.30, so we are having a film night, Secrets of the Sistine, Rabbi Benjamin Blech, one of my wife's favorite subjects, showing how there's not one Christian symbol on the Sistine Chapel. It's all Jewish uh, symbols and uh, codes and whatnot, believe it or not. Um He's written a book about it called The Secrets of the Sistine Chapel. We've talked about with with him here. I've heard him at the JCC and another place. I heard him twice, I think, talk about it. So we're gonna have a film about it, and that's gonna be Sunday the sixteenth at seven thirty at Jewish The Ferndale, seventeen twenty five Pinecrest Drive. It's an eight dollar admission. Comes with free popcorn. Yay! And uh, we have a movie popcorn maker, so it's not. We're not. You're not getting jiffy pop over here. This is the real deal. On the twenty fifth, which is Tishabov, so Jewish Ferndale will be hosting a pre fast dinner. That's twelve bucks. It is a non meat meal because you're not allowed to eat meat during the nine days prior to Tishabov, so it'll be non meat. We're not gonna call it vegan, we call it vegetarian. Uh one of the things you have to eat is you have to eat an egg. Okay, if eggs don't bother you, if you don't mind if you're an Ufarian, that's fine. Then uh one of the things that's customary to eat is an egg because it's a sign of mourning. And we can talk about that. You can send me a letter and I'll explain to you why an egg is a sign of a symbol of mourning. And that's followed by, that's at 8 o'clock at about 9.30-ish. We will be reading the Book of Lamentations, which is custom to be read on the eve of Tisha B'Av, Followed by a classic Jewish Ferndale event, which gets lots of really good press and publicity. And people come, our Tisha B'Av stories. We sit around for an hour and I tell stories of the destruction this year. I alternate between the first and second temple this year. We will be talking about the destruction of the first temple in the year 536 BCE. That's what's going on right now at Jewish Ferndale. You can check us out at jewishferndale.com or the Jewish Ferndale Facebook page or on Instagram. Yes, Jewish Ferndale Instagram. We're all there. The story got a quick one for you involves Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum of Ujeli, who eventually his kids became the Satmar rabbis. And I don't know if he became a Satmar, but he became wrote a book called the Yismach Yisrael, and the, and the Satmar Hasidim used that as a uh, primal text for their core beliefs. So when he was a young man, he was married to a very wealthy man. No, let's try that again. He was married to the daughter of a wealthy man. And this wealthy man supported Rabbi Moshe for many years, so that he could sit unencumbered and learn with great diligence. He was a, he was a big scholar. Without giving anything out, he was a tremendous scholar, the Yismach Moshe. His father-in-law died. Now he's got to go find a source of livelihood. So then what does he know? He knows how to learn. That's all he knows how to what to do. So he came up with a plan. He's going to get 10,000 kriners, which is the unit of currency over there, And he'll put it in a mutual fund, and he'll get uh, the interest from it. And from the interest, he'll be able to live. There's only one problem is, how do you get 10,000 kroners? Kroners. And it's bothered him that he couldn't get the 10,000 kroners. One day he was sitting and learning, and he started to cry over his lot. I don't have 10,000 kroners. How am I going to live? And he fell asleep. He face-planted right on his book, which I can relate to that. I do that, too. But he had a dream, and he's led into this huge hall, and he sees a person sitting there with this like shining face. And he walks into a side room. He sees somebody sitting there. He says, "Who's that guy sitting there with the shining face?" He looks at him, and says, "You don't know who that is?" <laughs> Excuse me, this is my dream. I did not know, you know. He says, "That's the Arizal, whose yurt site is on uh, next." four days before Tisha B'av. So Tisha B'av's on a Thursday, so Sunday, next Sunday, is, is uh, his Yartzeit, the anniversary is passing. So he went and he went approach to Urizel. and approached the Arizal. The Arizal looked at him and said, says, can you walk? He says, yes, I can walk. Are you breathing? He says, are you breathing? Do you have what to eat for your next meal? He said, yes, I do. He says, where does all that come from? So the minister thought for a second and said, it comes from Hashem. So this Hashem provided all of that for you. So what are you crying about 10,000 criners? Hashem will provide what you need when you need it. This is where Moshe woke up with renewed vigor and outlook on life. And I guess he lived happily ever after. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? That's going to do it. We hope he had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope he had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care.